Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. And today we're talking about grief. And so I think a good place to start is to talk about when and why we grieve. I mean, grief is about that sort of deep, deep sorrow that we feel when we lose somebody to death. And so I think that there are a cluster of emotions around grief that make it up, a circuit of feelings, I might say, including sadness or heartache or agony or suffering. Um, And I also think generally there's love. So it's hard for me to see grief as is separate from love. I think we feel that deep anguish and heartbreak and despair when we feel really attached to a person or non-human people, pets, I think, too. For some people, you know, they grieve their pets because they're non-human people in their families and they become companions. And so I think grief is a really powerful way of thinking about a whole constellation of emotions around our attachment to other living beings. What do you think about that? So we've talked previously about how attachment is a dangerous emotion, Mm -hmm. that it creates a lot of um, negative affect. It creates a lot of pain, jealousy, and resentment. It's kind of interesting for me to think about grief as related to attachment, because I think attachment is very negative, but I think grief can be related to a relationship that you have or a connection that you have or a passion that you have that is very positive, uh, experience of rejection or a death or a disconnect just loss i'm interested in grief as it relates to the things that you're connected to as a person i'm interested in grief because i think the things that you grieve are the things that matter i mean i i really think that if we think about the way that people mourn and express grief publicly or privately in the u.s It's very interesting to look at sociological data around the world because I think that Americans, shockingly, are really repressed about grief and they have a hard time considering death as a possibility. Uh, It's not talked about. It's not celebrated generally. It's not experienced in a way that I think is culturally healthy with it being the case that Americans repress grief as much as they do lots of other emotions. It seems to me that the way in which that we experience the loss of parts of ourselves or people that we're close to is very much tied to who's allowed to publicly express emotions, period. You know, I write a lot about assassinations and I have a piece that I have presented a couple of places, it's not published yet, but it's about the assassination of Martin Luther King. I've been thinking through King's assassination as a way of understanding how affective communities emerge and recede around a slain leader and about how people understood King's assassination as a total repudiation of the nation's ability to love black citizens. I think that public mourning, especially around assassination, is about losing the nation as an object of love. 
And what does it mean to be disenfranchised in a country that doesn't love you back? Which is the whole point, of course, of the Black Lives Matter hashtag and saying Black Lives Matter in a nation that consistently demonstrates how much it does not value our lives. I think that there are these circuits of feelings around that become visible maybe differently around grief that demonstrate how we desire closeness to objects of attachment and and that mobilize feelings of identification with ideas or people or sentiments or political affiliations in ways that reorient whole communities of practice and their values. I'm also thinking about this, the outpouring of white liberal lady grief around Hillary Clinton's loss. And on the one hand, I understand the liberal impulse to mourn her presidency. And there was a a tweet that made the rounds this week that was like, you know, we could have had the first woman president and instead we have this train wreck. I understand why people attach themselves to her as a symbol of the fact that I guess, I guess women generally, but really white women specifically, were finally going to have, you know, an expression of structural power that white women themselves wanted to see as a path for their community of practice. And so it's not even really that I judge them for wanting to see the representation of their gender race category as part of what structural power in the presidency looks like. But the way in which that grief emerged has been fascinating to me because I watched the marches around the country of mostly women who, in my mind, were trying to take up physical space as a way of reorienting their bodies towards the nation as their process of mourning continued, right, during and after the inauguration. And so that is also very interesting, the kind of space that physical bodies take up while they're mourning, what kind of proximity they're into others. I was very curious about the pink pussy hats and all the t-shirts and the slogans and the nasty stuff, which I don't understand, but okay, I guess you can try and occupy being a nasty woman if that makes you feel empowered. But none of those things are are avenues to power, but they are... They fundamentally are expressions of attachment to identities. A lot of what you're categorizing as despair or grief about Hillary is actually anger. Here's the the thing about grief in America. It's not allowed. Yeah. I mean, it's not recognized. It doesn't receive compassion. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be afraid. You can have a, a a large range of emotions, but grief, I mean, there's not space for mm. that, especially because there are so many expectations. Keeping your shit together is a full-time job now. And then on top of that, I mean, the American workplace is... Uh, I can't think of any field that isn't hyper-competitive. You can't take off work, you know? Mm -hmm. When you have a real human experience that mandates grief. Okay, you can take two, three days off work, Mm -hmm. but that's it. There's not a lot of space for grief. And I don't think that grief was ever expressed in this election cycle. 
I think it was anger. Mm, I think it was. Mm-mm. I disagree. Rejection. I mean, just be, having been around so many intellectuals that supported the Clinton presidency the day after the ele- the week after the election, I was at a conference. I mean, people were publicly sobbing. I saw people all around Fayetteville when I got back, cried for weeks. So I don't know that that's true because I saw a lot. I saw a lot of complicated emotions about the end of her presidential run. That definitely included anger, but then also included fear and frustration and sadness. And I mean, they were expressing loss. In a fundamental way. Here's and, the thing, But the though. thing that they lost was not Hillary Clinton. They lost their fantasy of identification with her as the body that would symbolize the nation. That's not necessarily the same as losing an actual person. But as somebody who studies political assassinations, it is very much the same. You know, the feelings are the same. The intensity is the same. The depression is the same. Except that the nation continues on whether or not you have fidelity to you know, the symbolic leader of it. And, and, and perhaps that's how it works in families too, right? You lose the matriarch or patriarch of your family and the family continues without that person. It just shifts. The dynamics change. But for me, I think, I think you're right when you say that there is not space to grieve that I think capitalism is opposed to grief. Because it's about accumulation and not loss. And so it makes sense to me that capitalism would preclude tremendous outpourings of public grief and that they would be erased from public memory. So, for example, the press has a blackout when we go to war from covering the returning caskets of soldiers killed in action. Why is that a lacuna in the American political imaginary? Because we're not allowed to grieve those soldiers. We're not allowed to even see their bodies coming back. That seems to me an indication, a piece of evidence about how much work the nation puts into us not coming into contact with feelings of grief. I wonder about that because at least in political contexts, grief seems to be a very big motivator for political outrage. So I see grief as an extremely political emotion, something that can motivate collectives of people to mobilize in certain ways. So, for example, after the assassination of King, black power became much more radical because the head of the black national body had been had been removed. We call it the body politic for a reason. We see the nation as a physical embodiment of personhood, which is why, you know, justice and liberty are personified as women. So if we think about the nation as a body and we see these instances of political assassination, what does that tell us about the health of the nation as a national body? That, see, here's the thing about Trump, is that all of this focus on his hair and his orangeness and his suits, and I mean, all of these, if you just like a cursory image search of cartoons of Trump are all about his body as an illegitimate representation of the body politic. His physical representation is an embodiment of his inability to function as a leader too so he just physically does not represent someone who has it together but also (laughs) that's very correlated with his political acumen the thing about trump is that he has no ability whatsoever to unify or create identification paths that are broad enough in the in the public culture to sustain his presidency and so Regardless of what happens to 
him as a president, I don't know that there will be public grief for him. I don't know that he's grievable. I think that there actually, Judith Butler would agree, that there are some people who are not grievable, and they're ungrievable for a bunch of different reasons. For white people, Malcolm X was ungrievable because he was extremely critical of white liberals. And so there are all of these spaces where Malcolm's name can't be uttered, despite the fact that he was easily the most deft intellectual of his generation. If you can't speak their names or hear their words, they are ungrievable. But I think Trump is ungrievable for a different reason. He represents incoherent national identity. We did a lot of grieving um, in 2016 Mm -hmm. because there was a lot of death and there was a lot of public grief around that, around people who are influential and inspirational and part of the American psyche. I don't want to just focus on the celebrity death, because I do think that there is a public grief that's very legitimate. And you mentioned the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. The deaths mm-hmm. of innocent humans. But that's always how black agitation has always worked. It's always been a necropolitical thing where it's been the death of black Americans that has pushed movement activism forward, whether that's Jimmy Lee Jackson or whether that's Medgar Evers, or whether it's Mal- Malcolm X or Martin Luther King or Tamir Rice or Trayvon Martin or Sandra Bland or Emmett Till. All of those black deaths have catalyzed tremendous reinvestments of activism in the communities in which those innocents were lost. The interesting thing for me with Trump right now is going to be the Affordable Care Act because a repeal in part or whole is going to kill hundreds of thousands of people for no good reason, just from lack of access to health care. And so I feel like there's going to be a real, there's going to have to be a debate in the country about whether or not it's just okay to let poor people just die on the streets. When clearly we've been able to prevent millions of deaths, basically, since, you know, the Affordable Care Act was expanded in, in so many states. I mean, that conversation is coming to a head, I think. And that's where I think you're going to see an outpouring of really compelling stories from regular people about their inability to afford insulin because they're a diabetic or their inability to afford autism care or their, you know, right? Just things that affect every single family in the country and about why we would be so cruel as to withhold accessible care for anybody who needed it. And so, you know, in some ways, I suspect that there's going to be a convergence of grief about the nation as it gets dragged further down into the morass of incompetence and failure and corruption and a grieving for the nation's citizens who are going to be subjected to a completely and totally dysfunctional and punitive federal government. I mean, the interesting thing about Trump's inaugural is that it was so negative You would think America was just like this burning wasteland, this purgatory on the way to hell. This whole campaign. Yeah, it's so negative. A swamp. I wonder what you think about grief as a mobilizing strategy, because I really appreciate and I follow the Black Lives Matter movement. And I wonder if you think that grief can move progressive politics forward you know you mentioned the affordable health care act 
when people are actually losing their lives or becoming terminally ill because they don't have access to healthcare. Are those narratives going to help move the needle left? It depends. It depends because, I mean, in the case of civil rights movement, a death like Emmett Till or a death like Martin Luther King became a cultural trauma. And cultural traumas occur when members of a group feel like they have witnessed some horrendous event that has fundamentally shifted their identity as a people. So the lynching of Emmett Till did that. The assassination of Martin Luther King did that. In, in, a, in, in, a, in a similar way, the deaths at the hands of the police officers that BLM activists have mobilized around, Trayvon Martin especially, but also Freddie Gray and Michael Brown and Tamir Rice, both echo that cultural trauma and also make that the history of black death in America much more um, contemporary. So I don't know. I think that there have been moments when cultural traumas, the assassination of JFK is a cultural trauma, um, have, have catalyzed action. In the case of Kennedy's assassination, it created unprecedented consensus among liberals and conservatives to pass the civil rights bill, to pass the Voting Rights Act. And, um, you know, that kind of consensus building can happen in times of cultural trauma. But that is also different than activism. Catalyzing national sentiment for a president to be able to whip votes is a different thing than what happens on the ground to rebuild communities that have been shafted by segregation and poverty and a lack of access to capital. Does it sustain movement activism I don't know that cultural traumas sustain them, but they mark them. They mark the identities of the participants. There's a disconnect between how I feel about Trump's presidency and how the Muslim population feels. Oh, yeah. Or how people who are more affected by his policy decisions, like how do I distinguish my anguish about his presidency given my political feelings and your subject positioning exactly as a white woman and how people who are who are being targeted by his policy (laughs) are they feeling grief are they feeling anger fear i mean they're feeling those things but mostly they're feeling aggrieved by the nation by the national body that's why i hit the the representations of his body matter i think that Probably the biggest misstep of the first three weeks have been just like trying to railroad all of these super punitive bills that are clearly targeted at minorities all at the same time. Because what that has done is created a sense of interest convergence where people are are not feeling grief necessarily, but they're being aggrieved. They're being acted upon. And it's that acting upon, that's how you create narratives of collective trauma is by convincing publics that in the same moment they are being targeted unfairly by power. And that is absolutely what's happening now. And so what's going to happen is that you're going to see interest convergence among women and immigrants and Muslims and refugees and all these different populations that span, quite frankly, both parties. And they are going to see the Trump administration itself as a collective trauma. 
So I think that that's much of the symbolic work that's that's taking place now, certainly in visual representations, but also in the way that the news media is covering the Trump administration's hostility towards the press. So that is a huge space where the media itself then become also the aggrieved. So if you have these interests aligning of like all of these different embodied groups of people targeted because they're bodies, and then the press, which is supposed to be the body that checks the three separation of powers as the fourth estate, then you have the platform to create a narrative about how the administration itself is the one that's inflicting the wound on the nation and potentially fatal. I mean, the Russia stuff is interesting to me because we've been producing anti-Russian propaganda for 150 years. So people are very familiar with demonizing Russia. This move to allow them to have this kind of insider track to the White House, hidden and papered over as it is by all of these facile explanations, misinformation and lies, and then all of the leaks surrounding them. (laughs) I mean, all that does is build the narrative that Trump is a national body, is the aggressor, and that the nation is the victim. And that is how you build a narrative of cultural trauma. That's how you build social movement activism. I mean, I think in localized sense, the loss of one celebrity or one figure can help reorient a community around social change. But in terms of like national power and how the nation perceives itself, this is precisely the kind of thing that reorients power in a way that distributes it away from the government and into the people's hands. I was talking to some students last week about Daisy Bates, who was the mentor of the Little Rock Nine um, during the year where Governor Orville Faubus in Arkansas tried to prevent the desegregation of Little Rock Central High School. And Mm -hmm. I said, you know, this is the 60th anniversary and they're, they're, they're tremendous parallels between Little Rock as a city and Central High as a high school and the the school district now and then, right? Because the state has taken over the Little Rock school district. They're trying to take the school buildings and reappropriate them for charter schools and privatize them. And it's the same sort of assault on public education that you saw 60 years ago. I said, but the interesting thing now to me is that that is happening alongside, you know, this anti-refugee sentiment, anti-immigrant sentiment, anti-woman sentiment, and it's creating a space for a different kind of narrative about how we are going to fundamentally view social services, all of them, public education, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, public health care, all of those things are now on the table to be reimagined differently, I think. You know, and the fact, (coughs) one more thing, the fact that you had all of these white people, the fact that you had all of these white people spontaneously show up at airports to defend Muslims, that is not a thing. That is not a thing that has happened in American public life the way that it happened when he announced the Muslim ban. And so that, to me, signifies that the nation as a people, like the vox populi, the voice of the people, has changed in the way that it discusses itself in relation to Trump as the representation of the national body. So I wondered how you think about the narrative of lean in when your relationship to authority oh, yeah. is is so totally <laughs> yeah. oppositional. So now we have this leader who we don't we don't trust and I assume that most of the American populace especially if they're not a straight white man there's this leadership that we don't trust 
And so how do you lean in then? It's not legitimate. No. It's no longer legitimate. You can ask someone to lean in when you have a leadership that will support you and catch yes. you, but that's not the reality No, right this is a total lean back moment. This is a moment of political leaning back that is being encouraged by the media and also, in a strange way, in- encouraged by the administration. They want America to lean back away from facts and accountability. And America is leaning into those things, right? A, because it's infotainment, and B, because there's all this nefarious shit going on. The left is going to be best served by occupying the space of patriotism, right? When the plurality of people who are being targeted by the Trump administration become the voice of America and the national body as a pluralistic, heterogeneous space again, and occupy that space with all of the diversity of their voices as patriots defending the nation, they're going to win the power back because Trump has no ability whatsoever to unify or create identification, which is why I think people who are following politics, who do politics for a living, are extremely concerned about a terrorist attack or some sort of major national catastrophe, because that those are moments where potentially the executive can rally identification. But if that were to happen now, I don't even know if that would be the case. You really? know, I've always thought about uh, the left moving in a very progressive, anti-nationalist way, and for you to describe... That movement. No, because the thing is, is that the Tea Party moved to totally destroy national power and invest in the states to pit the states against each other. And so the winning strategy is going to be to reimagine the nation as a safe haven, as a national space where lots of different people can collaborate. It is not going to be reinvesting in this balkanized patchwork quilt space. It's going to be what happens when the people say, no, your rights should not be dependent upon which zip code you live in. They should be dependent upon what our national conversation is about who we value and which rights should be distributed equally among all these different types of people. So it seems to me that a reinvestment in the national is going to have to be the strategy for the left. Moving past relitigating the election and the grief of Hillary Clinton's loss has to come at a premium. We have got to get to a position where all those sad white people decide then that they want to commit themselves to supporting immigrants and communities of color and refugees and undocumented residents and children and the poor and women and queers and trans people Mm -hmm. that we have got to get to a position where all of those sad white people take that sad and put it into their pocketbook and their time and their intellectual energy into building coalitions that can withstand this kind of decrepit corrupt national body We've got to do better. That's what white people need to be doing. There is a recognition of, like, unfair death, of black death, of disenfranchisement, political sidelining. I see that people are showing up. They're showing as a up. Result. But protests do not maintain a movement. It's organizations that build grassroots organizing. I, I need to see the shift from resisting to building. I mean, we live in a white town, 80% white, we've got a giant Black Lives Matter banner. I mean, you know, but there's an opportunity. I will say organizations are being sidelined, you know, in terms of funding. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Go march, whatever, that's important. I'm just saying that that's not what you need to be doing to maintain progressive policy. 
marching is not going to do the thing. It makes a good Instagram pic. True. <laughs> I, I can't disagree with that. Can't disagree. I also think now there's a checklist. I think people feel like mm-hmm. they've done their part if they check a box. I agree. I made a cool sign and I marched. And so I did my part. But it's a slog. And so I think grief is important in that way because mm. it's not a thing that you can erase, right? It's not a thing you can like check off and you're like, I'm done. Like, I'm not sad anymore. I made a cute sign with like a cool slogan and I got like a hundred likes on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> um, so <laughs> grief, I think, is really important in that way because it's like a constant reminder. Like, yeah. you can't just erase it by checking off a box. You have to continually engage. It's a permanent feeling in some ways. Yeah. Or at least one that... It marks bodies. Grief marks bodies. Right. Yeah. It is permanent in that way. You know, it marks the body and the memory of the body. One, that's one thing we haven't talked about, is sort of the relationship between grieving and memory. You know, and how we circulate memories to relive grief or to postpone grief or to magnify grief, or to connect our grief to others' grief. I mean, memory is the vehicle that does that, which is why in this political moment, the memories and narratives of people who are being aggrieved by the state are going to be what knits together a patchwork, you know, of the narrative concerning the Trump administration's punitive, you know, policies. And so, you know, memory is the, is the vehicle through which we circulate ideas about grieving and the way that we produce it and consume it as participants or spectators. I think that grief is sometimes in opposition uh, progress in terms of the, like, capitalistic narrative about what you should be doing. I feel like a lot of times you don't give the appropriate gravity you know, mm-hmm. to your grief, just because it's not convenient to do so. There's a premium on taking the time to grieve. There's a certain humanity about grief. I mean, the thing about it is that grief prompts reflection, and reflection is where people make different decisions about where to invest their emotional labor, their physical capital, and these sorts of things. It helps reorient values. People cannot reconstitute themselves as selves in the absence of things that they're attached to without really, really interrogating the values that they have that holds those objects of attachment dear. Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.